Let's, uh, let's talk, go back to the cross here. Today, I, in, in dealing with the cross, the title of my, my, my sermon, as soon as I pop it up here, there we go, boom, there we go, we got the cross. I don't know the man. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? We are going to be displaying a lot of these around the sanctuary as we get ourselves ready for Good Friday. Sometimes we say that, don't we? I don't know the man. We can be t tempted to deny Christ. The title of uh, my, uh, my sermon today actually is um, Caiaphas, Pontius Pilate, Judas, and me. And uh, it sounds like, uh, well, what do you mean, me? What do you mean, me? I want to I talk about our identity with some of those things that have that took place and what we know, that, that last hour of passion of Jesus. Last week, we, we started this series uh, entitled The Cross, establishing that the cross is actually the symbol of the Christian faith, and it's actually the central message of the gospel. We talked about that the, the cross gives us access to God's presence. We talked about that the cross makes it possible for God to forgive us. We talked last week about the cross is our identity. I am loved, and the cross makes it possible for God to love me. I am adopted. I've been adopted into a family, and the cross made it possible for me to be adopted. I am chosen because the cross made it possible for God to choose me. I am all these things. I, I have been made worthy to enter into the presence of God because of the cross. I have the power of the Holy Spirit that's been released in my life and in your life because of the cross. I, I am the recipient of grace and unmerited favor because of the cross. I am everything that I am, even dead to sin and crucified with Christ because of what Jesus did on the cross. A lot of people would say, well, what, isn't your identity the way God made you? And that's a part of my package, the way God made me. When, and I think it's important that we discover our bents and the way we are so we can be comfortable in our skin and go after the will of God and not try to be somebody else. But none of those things are even possible outside of the cross. The cross. It's the cross is the, is the picture of how God brings power out of weakness. How God takes cursed people and he makes some royalty. It's the cross that communicates that. It's the cross that calls me and it calls you to live a self-giving and sacrificial life for God and others. The cross speaks of that. You know, a lot of people kind of look at, what does the Bible say about this? Have you ever heard someone say, what does the Bible say about this? It might be any subject, uh, about giving, about how to uh, approach uh, you know, my job, and, you, and so you find a topic, and you, you look at self-control. What does the Bible have to say about self-control, or what does the Bible have to say about um, forgiveness? And, and so we go into the Bible, and we, we get a, a topical Bible research tool, and we look up all the scriptures on that subject, on forgiveness, or, or um, the fear of the Lord, or hard work, and diligence, and we kind of look at that, and we kind of study that, and we, and we want to you know, apply that in our life, and, 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 and it has a lot of qualities, but one of the great dangers of that is that the Bible is not about us taking a topic and then saying, I want to comply to that topic, and I'm going to start making goals, how I'm going to make that topic in my life, because through it all, you can miss the message of the cross. 
The message of the cross is printed throughout the scriptures. The first prophecy that God gave in the book of Genesis, out of the seed of the woman, come on, out of that seed, that seed will will basically crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent will bruise its heel. Speaking of the crucifixion of Jesus, all throughout the Bible, it's the cross, it's the cross, it's the cross, it's the cross, it's the cross. Kevin Connor has now just gone to be with the Lord in his famous book, The Tabernacle of Moses. He showed an aerial view of, of, of what uh, the, when the tribes of Israel would camp in their journey in the wilderness, and they had a tent temple in the middle of it, you saw, the, you saw on, the, on the two sides, you saw the smaller tribes. And then on the, on the other sides, you saw the absolutely, you, you saw the, the larger tribes. And if you flew over it, you would see a cross. And you see the cross is everywhere. The way they lined up the furniture in the temple was the cross. The way they approached God spoke of the cross. The central message of the whole Bible is the cross. And if you just kind of look at that one thing, how I can be more forgiving or how I can be more self-control or how can I be a good steward, you just kind of look at that. The problem with that is that we become better we, 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 in, our, in our mind. It kind of leads us to a sense of moral goodness and, and moral superiority that we're doing those things. And we're kind of looking at steps of action rather than the power of God. We're kind of wanting to become better in our own strength. We're wanting to, to kind of have a better attitude. And I believe in being better and, and, and trying to improve ourselves. We want to change our attitude. I think we need to change our attitude, but I'm kind of doing this in my own ability. I'm going to change my own mentalist, my mental state. And sometimes God has to change my mental states. Sometimes God has to change my attitude. I kind of, you know, but the whole time I'm void of, of understanding that God gives me a thing called grace, which, which has two F's in it. It's represented by two F words. There you go, F words. <laughs> One is favor, unmerited favor that comes to me that I don't deserve, but the other is force. Grace is a power that works mightily in me, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Some of you are pursuing things in your life, not just because you thought it was a good idea, but God has mightily worked in your heart to go after those things. You were made for that thing, and he recognizes, he's moving in you, and you want to do it for the glory of God. That is not you. That is grace that's leading you to do that. And there's just a difference between me trying to better myself in my own strength and change my own attitude. I'm kicking my cross all over the place here. But uh, I'll bring it up later. You guys remember my piece of jewelry from last year, last week. We're just kind of doing our own ability. Thank you, Tamar. Yeah. Doing it in my own strength and in my own, my, own, my own goal setting. And how many people have set goals that you didn't complete? <laughs> Made vows at January 1 that didn't get fulfilled. You failed short of them by January 15th. I, uh, <clears throat> Laura Truitt asked me a question here about three months ago. It turned into something very interesting. She asked me, you know, Bob, what was the most ins one of the most inspirational people in your life? And, and, I, and I talked with her about a, a, a track and, and football coach that I had by the name of Zeke Zimmerman. I've talked about this really all over the world, who when I was a freshman in high school, and he was only coached that one year at our high school, he was the greatest motivator I'd ever seen. He, he lied to you about how good you were. <laughs> he lied to you about your potential. And he said, if you do these things, if you do these things, this is what you're going to do. 
Like you're going to take state. You're going to go to the Olympics. You're going to be, I mean, he made you believe that. And he put that in me. He said, you're one out of a thousand. And he lied to me. And, uh, <laughs> and if you do this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a full ride. And he, he was Mormon. And uh, he, he was going to BYU, either to go to school or to coach there. And uh, he goes, I'll get you a full scholarship. My, his last words to me when I was 14 years old, I'll get you a scholarship there, football scholarship. You keep on lifting weights, you keep on doing this. I was, I was as tall as I am right now and about 85 pounds lighter than I am right now. I looked like a skeletal chart in a bio lab, okay? <laughs> and I, I believed him and I went after those things and I ended up playing college football. And I ended up be, you know, becoming a, a good student. And uh, well, anyway, so Laura asked me, so she went on this search to find him for me. Because I had lost contact, I haven't seen him since I was 14 years old, but it really impacted my life in a very, very positive way. And uh, she found one of my classmates. I won't mention his name in case he's going to listen to this podcast. But uh, he, uh, we made contact. So I talked with this guy who was an incredible athlete himself, one of the best baseball players in California at the time. And uh, he went on, played baseball. He too was a Mormon, played baseball for BYU, went on and we hadn't talked with each other in over 40 years, and so we had a talk here about three weeks ago on the phone, and, and he's just a wonderful, wonderful person. He's just a wonderful guy. But in my conversation, because he was excited about what I do, and he was excited about, he was talking about a mutual friend of ours. He says, he's a really on fire Christian. He used those terms. But as I was talking to my friend, and we had a good 45-minute discussion, I found there was just, in all his things that he does, there was just something missing. One was that sense of his own weakness and the sense of his own brokenness that Jesus was healing was absent. He does a number of wonderful things and he's a wonderful God. And I remembered his dad when I was a teenager. What a wonderful dad he had. But there's just something that was missing and what was missing was the power of transformation of grace that comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. We just can't look at topics and go apply them in our own strength. Now we need to look at how we need to learn to forgive and how we need to become good stewards, but not in our own strength and ability. How many people started off to pursue something, a spiritual discipline that, that didn't just happen overnight? We also talked about creeds, public statements that bind us to the fundamental truths of the Christian faith. And I've had you quote some creed. I had you, I had you quote a creed of the, the interrogative creed of Hippolytus last week. That was a good one. We're going to go back to basic Catholicism here, just teasing you. Okay, we're going to quote the Apostles' Creed today. This is what we're going to do. You see it right up here. And how many uh, ex-Catholics, ex-Episcopalians, Anglicans, ex-Lutherans, uh, okay, do we have here that... Okay, you, you've read these things as part of liturgical worship. Some of you say, well, you know, what's this all about? The guys that wrote this down are the guys that preserved the New Testament for us. The creeds bind us to the basic tenets of the Christian faith. They're going to use the word Catholic here. I want you to think universal, okay? That's what the word means, and don't think we're asking you to go back to the Vatican. Would you just speak this... Would you, would, you, would, you, would you speak this and share this with me as we speak? Ready, let's read this out loud. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, 
and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. If you just knew what each one of those truths meant, you got those things down, you have the foundation to move forward to be a mature follower of Jesus. Now, that is a little bit harder than you think. A lot of people just quote it, don't even understand what it means. But there's a lot of meat there. There's a lot of meat in that. Now, the Apostle Paul actually quoted a creed in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance, which I also received. What's, what's of first importance? What's the, what is the first important thing that we need to understand? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Remember the whole Bible, central message of the Bible, the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, is the cross. And he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. There was a PBS series on world religions, and it made this statement, whether it made it in a derogatory sense or made it in an, af an affirming sense or just a factual sense, but they are correct. And they said this, Christianity is the only major religion to have its central focus, the suffering and degradation of its God. You know, if you... You, you, you look at the other leaders of, of religion and, and world philosophy in, in the world, uh, they either, their, their religion or their philosophy rose in, in prominence and authority while they were still alive and they, and they enjoyed years of influence and they enjoyed, some of them enjoyed years of affluence. But they all enjoyed long life. Muhammad he lived until 60, expanding Islam throughout Arabia, one battle at a time. We have the, we have the, the, the philosopher, the Greek philosopher Socrates, who, yes, was forced to um, poison himself, did it with great courage. He was a great soldier in his own right because they, people didn't like what he had. It was called the Socratic method. The Socratic method is a really good method. We should use it today. And quit arguing, just keep asking questions of each other. Because questions basically expose the weakness of your emotion and the weakness of your presupposition. And so he got in a lot of trouble over this. But he did live until 70, and his, and his philosophy of his day affected, affected Greek culture. We have, we have people like, um, we have Buddha. We have Buddha. Buddha lived in, in an opulent palace up until the time of his late 20s. And then, yeah, he went to do some, some, some severe things of abstaining from things and, 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 and experiencing suffering and uh, ascetic lifestyles to come up with what he calls he was enlightened. And, uh, but he traveled as a, as a teacher all the way up to his, his dying days at the age of 80. Plato, the philosopher, who... Uh, <clears throat> who followed after the school of Socrates. He, he, died, um, he died as an honored philosopher, possessed his own estate, and was well-established in, in Greek culture. Jesus, 
our, our hero. He dies at 33, 34, depending on where you date his birth, which is always a little bit obscure. He dies uh, betrayed. He dies mocked. He, he dies forsaken. He dies arrested. He dies beaten. He dies scourged. He dies in execution and humiliation. He, ex he experiences extreme suffering from the coolest, the cruelest form of punishment ever created by man. That's who we follow. And when he, was, when he was crucified on the cross, he probably had the smallest church in church history. Zero. Maybe you could include his mother and a few women. I mean, there's no significance of Jesus that he ended this thing with a big bang, except three days later. But this is, this is, this is what we wrap ourselves around. So when PBS says that it's the only major religion to have at its central focus the suffering and degradation of God, that's, that's absolutely what we believe. For us. For us, which deepens this message far beyond our own experiential comprehension. At the cross, we see the revelation of Jesus himself in two ways. First, we see it in his wrath. Now, this is the negative side of the cross. And I know that his wrath is, it's hard for us to see God punishing people and, and judging and judging evil. Partially because we don't uh, see evil in ourselves. That's, that's one of our problems. The other problem we have is we don't see evil as we should see evil. Sometimes we get jaded, we're, we're numb to it, and evil things don't seem to be as, as evil as we think. And, and, uh, and so we, we, we have a hard time wrestling with this. And as I said, we have an innocent view of ourselves. We don't see how the human race being indifferent and, and uh, rebellious, uh, we, we don't see how that has affected and impacted God's heart towards us. Because of this, God is angry. God is angry. And that, and that, that wrestles, we, we wrestle with that fact that, that God could be angry with us because we don't see evil the way we should see evil. Now, the wrath of God is God's absolute repulsion with evil. Why? Because sin and evil destroy. They destroy you. They destroy me. They destroy relationships. They destroy families. They destroy culture. They destroy nations. They destroy sociology. They destroy everything. Psychology. They destroy everything. It's destructive. And God is repulsed by that. Now, when we say God is angry, his anger is not out of control. It's in control. When we say God is angry, it's not that, 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 that God's just flying off the handle. His anger is principled. One of the problems we have is that when we describe certain words, we see certain words in the context of our human experience. So let's just be positive here. We think of love. I think of the way I love my wife and I love my kids and love my family. And 
I, I, I think of love and my friends in that context. And there's true, but it's horribly incomplete if I'm going to compare that to the love of God. God's love is so much more intense. And then when we think of anger, we think of somebody who's just basically ticked off, flying off the handle, you know, impulsive, explosive, blowing up, and being vindictive. And God's anger is none of those things. His wrath opposes sin. He hates it. He hates it for what it's done. He hates it because it's destructive. The cross is God's wrath against all evil. It's God's wrath against wars. God's wrath against slavery. God's wrath against oppression. God's wrath against injustice. God's wrath against murder. God's wrath against pride. God's wrath against deceit. God's wrath against slander. God's wrath against greed. God's wrath against racism. God's wrath against sexual immorality. God's wrath against abortion and abuse and human autonomy apart from him that have completely disregarded God and his law and have completely destroyed the human race. God's wrath. I want you to feel the negative side of the cross because that's the revelation of God's repulsion against what destroys you and I. You know, we have no problem talking about that grace comes from the heart of God's love. And so God shows you favors because God is kind and his heart is towards me. And he doesn't treat me according to what I've done, but by who he is and he loves me. And, and, and you're absolutely true, but we've got to see wrath out of God's heart also. Out of his heart, he hates evil. Out of his heart, he hates destruction. Out of his heart, he hates what we do to each other. Out of his heart, he hates the attitude in seed form that could turn me into a monster if I'm not careful. He hates those things out of his heart of hating evil. So the cross is the revelation of God's wrath, but also the cross is the revelation of God's love, the positive aspect of the cross. God became man to die because he loves you. He loves you. You know, for God to humiliate himself just to become a man in itself was an incredible action to reach you and I. For God to be willing to go through such an extent to submit all, through all the suffering he's gone through, from his birth, by the way, it's not that Jesus just suffered that last week and especially that last day he suffered his whole life. When he came into the earth, he had a, he had a hit on him. There was, a, there was a reward out for his head. They tried to kill him right out of the womb. His whole life he faced evil, poverty, false accusation, unbelief, injustice, opposition. He suffered with you and I. He went through life's experience. He's fully experienced in all aspects of the evils of this life. He went through that plus he submitted himself to a trial. He submitted himself to arrest. He submitted himself to beatings. He submitted himself to mockings. He submitted himself to torture. And he submitted himself to murder. That means that his love for you and I to do that cannot be comprehended. 
I, um, he is the supreme example of self-giving. He is the su supreme example of sacrificing himself for the welfare of others. God established his law because he hates evil and wants to uphold his nature. And God loves you and I so much that he suffered all those things to fulfill the law so he can reach out to us in love. And when I came to Christ, I had a real real you know, realization about a few things that man had literally deceived me. Keith Green used to sing a song, I, I don't even know the title of it, and he's saying, you know, I was lied to, but you told the truth. I remember listening to that when I was first a convert, it was so true, I was so deceived by even the adult community of things they told me to buy into and feed into and go after that ended up destroying me, almost leading me to suicide. I was deceived. I realized that man had abused me, which I was literally abused. I realized that man had neglected me. I didn't know what it was to be nurtured. I didn't know what it was to be fed. I didn't know what it was to provide even things to, to basically practice normal hygiene. I was completely neglected. I know what it was to be betrayed. And then I started meditating upon Jesus. Jesus was the only person in my life that came to sacrifice himself for my welfare. He sacrificed himself for me. And I basked on it for months. He did this for me. He was motivated for me. He sacrificed for me. And I had never experienced that. And it was like my party in my first six months of being a Christian, how much I was enthralled by that act of compassion of Jesus. He loves us. Now this is why we need to be living in balance between two truths. The one truth is that God is holy, he upholds his law, and he will judge evil and sin. That motivates me to want to become like him and be pleasing in his sight. But I also have to be comforted in the reality that God loves me. He understands that I'm but dust. He understands that I have a human frame. He understands that I don't always get an A on my report card. He understands I don't have it all together. And he provided through the cross an access for me to be forgiven, and he provided through the cross the power of his Holy Spirit to transform me and change me into a different person. And I got to hold both of these truths in tension in my life. Truth and mercy. Holiness and love. And they got to keep me in perfect tension. see the cross clearly, we must see ourselves clearly. Martin Lloyd-Jones Lloyd made this particular statement. He said, if you, you look critically at the wondrous cross, you will see in it nothing but common wood. The cross is best discerned through repentant eyes. See, if I don't see my need, I won't see the cross. 
But if I see my need, my need for forgiveness, my need for help, my need to not have my past held against me, my present struggle held against me, my unworthiness held against me, my frailty held against me, I'm going to cling to the cross. The cross, I'm going to see much more in it than just a piece of wood. There's something more I'm going to see in this thing. It's that forgiveness happens to me through this cross. Grace comes to me through this cross. Adoption comes to me through this cross. God's love is displayed to me through this cross. God's healing comes through this cross. God's power to help me comes through this cross. I'm seeing it. But if I can't see that, I can't see my own condition, I can't see the cross. It's just a, a wood. It's just the degradation of their God. It's just weakness and foolishness. Paul said this, 1 Timothy 1.15, This saying is trustworthy, trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Now listen, Paul Paul saw himself, he, he, he recognized that he was made worthy because of what Jesus did on the cross. He recognized he was unworthy of God's forgiveness and he had received it and he's overwhelmed his whole life with deep appreciation of what God had done for him and how unworthy he was of what he did. He never lost the freshness of his salvation. He never got so mature that he quit recognizing the grace he received. I like the way Eugene Peterson put it in the message. He said, here's a word you can take to heart and depend on. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. I'm proof, public sinner number one of someone who could never have made it apart from sheer mercy. And now he shows me off evidence of his endless patience to those who are right on the edge of trusting him forever. Paul saw his evilness and God's grace shown to him as his platform for others to trust Jesus. We can never lose the freshness of salvation. I don't know how many times I've read the Bible. I don't, I don't count. How many books I've studied over and over and over and over again. How many sermons I've preached. How many sermons I've listened to, how many Bible classes I've taken, how many commentaries that I've read, but I can never, never lose the freshness that I am a sinner saved by grace. And that I'm totally unworthy of all the things he's allowed me to do for him, but yet he's made me worthy. We can never lose that. So let's talk about the night of Jesus' trial. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. We, we, we need to understand something that when we read the story of a gospel, and I'm going to talk to you about three aspects of his trial. I'm going to deal with the Jewish establishment of the day, not just all the Jewish people, the Jewish establishment, the leaders of that day. I'm going to deal with Pontius Pilate, and I'm going to deal with Judas. And we're reading these stories. We can get ourselves so just upset a little bit. But my, my prayer today is that we will see ourselves 
in the Jewish establishment. My prayer today is that we'll see ourselves in Pontius Pilate and that we can see ourselves in Judas. Sue went to a church, you may not even remember this, a great church in, in, uh, in Seattle back in the 70s when she was first saved, and they were doing a, a Good Friday play, and of course they were reenacting the, the, the trial of Jesus uh, in this play. And what the pastor was sitting, a very dignified man, just a, a wonderful man of God, he was sitting there that he didn't know is that there were many people in the crowd who were actors who were supposed to act out a certain part. So in this trial, someone just stood up and said, Crucify him! One of his congregational members. And then somebody else said, Give us Barabbas! And, and the pastor was like, just getting angry. Like, how could these people? And the, the whole crowd just kind of went up in an uproar, joining the mob to crucify Jesus. But you know what? In reality, we, we've done that. So let's, let's look at that. He, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Let's, let's look at Pilate. Pilate crucified Jesus to preserve his image and to maintain his power, which his whole ambition was focused on, and it led him to moral compromise. You know, as we, as we look at this, we, we look at Pontius Pilate, it says this, and I want you to listen to this. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. It's kind of interesting as I read you these words. He says, why, what evil has he done? He goes, I want, I, I, I've recognized him. I've examined him three times. And it's interesting, the Passover lamb was examined for three days. I've examined him. I've examined and I find nothing. So Pontius Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. He knows he's, he's innocent. And I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I'll therefore punish and release him. Now that might sound like a nice little compromise, but the punishment wasn't a little slap on the hand or three whacks with a bamboo stick. It was the cat of nine tails, 39 stripes. They just came one blow short of killing a man. It was being beat to a pulp and, and mocked. There was no light sentence, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their, listen to this, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate, this is in Luke 23, 22 to 25, by the way, Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. He knew that Jesus was innocent. He didn't want to be a man of conviction. He wanted a man to save his image, and he wanted to be a man to preserve his power. Their voices, it says, prevailed. The question I like to ask myself is, when have the voices of the crowd and voices of culture, voices of the world, have lured me or lured you into compromising our loyalty to Jesus. Then there was the, the Jewish establishment. They crucified Jesus out of, out of envy and pride. The whole nation was turning away from them and starting to follow Jesus, and Jesus was confronting them on what they needed to repent of. The Bible says in Matthew 27, 18, 
It says, for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him. He knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Envy. You know, envy and pride are part two sides of the same coin. You know, I'm envious because I want praise. I'm envious because I want position. I'm envious because I want possession and I somehow feel worthy of anything that you might obtain. And because of that, I get envious. It's interesting, Jesus came into the world really to threaten our world and to mess it up. He messed things up. He confronted attitudes. He confronted mindsets. He confronted superiority. You're not as good as you think. You don't got as much game as you really think you got game. You're not, you're not, you don't, you've got it together as much as you think you got it together. I'm coming to mess this up. And, you know, I, you know, he might say something to us like maybe, you know, right now you have a bad attitude. And I'm not going to bless you with what they have because I'm changing something in you. I want to mess up, mess you up a little bit. There's also something I want you to do that will cost you, and I want you to get into a position so you can do that. So I'm not going to give you what they have right now. So don't be jealous. You know, when Jesus comes to mess up our world, we, we do get jealous of other people. I've told this story before, but when Sue and I started Bible college back in 1982, we, we were flat broke. I took what left money we had to pay tuition, and went to school, we were house-sitting someone's house, and I drove a 1973 Datsun 510 where the driver's side, I mean the passenger side and the back seat, the two side doors on that side were held together with a coat hanger. My, my car sounded like a go-kart on the freeway. We had no money, I was broke, and we went Christmas break down to California to see our family, and we went to see Sue's good friend, Bernie, who had married a well-established known famous psychologist with five children was a widower and they were in this home that looked like the von trapp you know mansion you know sound of music and there we are and i'm right i'm pop 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 my go-kart and you know and i'm flat broke and i'm feeling horrible as a provider and and we're sitting on the couch and there she was with her husband and his arms around her and how you doing we're, we're doing fine and i'm just in a beautiful swimming pool with rocks and waterfalls, and I mean, it was, it was deplorable. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I'm just a mess. And I'm, as I'm just raging with jealousy as I'm doing the will of God, I hear the Lord speak to me. Don't put your eyes on that which is temporal. And immediately started backing up in my emotions get my attitude in check. The next year, Bernie was in a two-bed apartment in Englewood, California, because that same husband had an adulterous affair going on with the next-door neighbor and kicked her out of the family. She signed prenuptials, and she was completely kicked out of that whole world. And what I was eyeing was empty. Bernie actually came to church here about four years ago, prayed to receive Christ. Don't you set your eyes on that which is passing away. Envy, jealousy, pride, I deserve, entitlement. This is what put Jesus on the cross. 
separate unto Pontius Pilate. And then there's our friend Judas. You know, a lot of people debate on what motivated Judas to betray Jesus, but the simple fact is that he was greedy. Greed led him to pray, to pray Jesus, to betray Jesus. Notice this. But Judas Iscariot, one of the, the disciples, one of the twelve, one of the twelve, he who was about, I'm not going to read this again, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray Jesus, said, why was this ointment? So when they broke the alabaster box, poured it all over Jesus, sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Notice when he betrays Jesus, what he says, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 14 to 15. Then one of the 12, whose, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. He went to the chief priests and, and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. What will you give me? Greed. Can we allow greed to affect our devotion to Christ? I don't know how many Christian business reconciliation meetings I've been in the middle of as a pastor. How much bitterness has taken place in the church over money. How, many, how much money has brought the downfall of ministries and churches. And, I mean, greed is something we have to deal with. Can greed affect my devotion to Christ? Can envy affect my devotion to Christ? Can pride affect my devotion to Christ? Can wanting to keep my image, keep power, keep position affect my devotion to Christ? You know, one of my favorite songs is how deep the Father's love for us. And there's a, there's a verse in here that really impacted me. The first time I heard it, I remember Wade Steele burned a CD and he, I was listening to music he wanted to introduce to the church. And, and as I was driving into my driveway hearing this verse, I just had to stop my car and I went from way back to a place where I forgot about the cross all the way to the foot of the cross and I just had a weeping session in my driveway. And here's the words, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, and this is what got me, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Why don't you sing that with me? I'll lead you. I got great pitch. <laughs> Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out
like our worship team to come on up here. Father, I, I pray today. I pray today as we continue to reflect upon the cross. That Lord, it will be everything we're to make it. It will be our boast. It will be our identity. It will be what we cling to when we enter your presence. It will be, Lord, a reflection of how much you hate sin and how much you hate evil. It will be a reflection of how radically you love us, how extreme you love us, and to the great extent you took to come after us. And we look at the cross. Lord God, is your great wisdom to basically destroy evil, to bring people to you and to bring reconciliation to be between people. We thank you that you suffered all the degradation and all the humiliation that you suffered so that we do not. We thank you for your favor that you bring to us, your kindness you extend to us. May we never move too far from that. May we examine ourselves in the light of your own, your own death. Jesus, you were murdered. You walked right into it willfully, but you were murdered. You submitted yourself to it, but you were murdered. Lord, we can pick stones up and cast them at the people who are part of murdering you, but we've all suffered with greed. Lord, we, we've all wrestled with pride and image and ambition for a position. We've all at times... Lord God, have been envious of others because we haven't been focused upon what you want to do in our lives. And Lord, we're asking today in Jesus' name for your forgiveness. We're asking in this season, we just won't like give up hamburgers or snicker bars, but we would search our heart. Where in my heart of my life have I drifted from devotion to Christ? And bring us back to the cross in Jesus' name. Larry, I just closed. If you just pray with me, church. If you're here today and maybe you've never committed your life to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, or you've been away from Jesus for a long time and you want to, I want to come back to this cross and I want to receive the forgiveness and favor and the love you were talking about. And would you pray for me, Bob? You just... Raise your hand up and just hold it just for a second so I might see that. There's an opportunity for you to come to him today. All right. If you're here and saying, Bob, then I'm going to spend a little extra time examining my heart during this season and see where I am in relationship to the cross. Just, and would you pray for me as you raise your hand? Father, for those who raise their hands, I thank you. Lord God, that you will search their hearts during this time. And we thank you, Lord God, for your grace that's being extended to them. That, Lord God, you're making them to become like you. Help us die with you in this cross. Help us die to sin and die to those things that got you crucified. We pray this in Jesus' name.